what you're about to hear here is another episode with our old pal Spencer McCall, who we've had on the podcast quite a few times. You can search for his name. You can find him in there talking about dispatches from elsewhere and the other projects he's created, which is the Institute, the Jejun Institute, in Bright Axiom, Grandview Boulevard, uh, plus bunch of other short films which you can find on his Vimeo channel. Lots and lots of information. This thing all connects. And then I just now end up hearing that there's yet another branch of it all called Christor Inc. You could tell just how much I'm off my bearings here. I've, I, I'm trying to choose. There's so many paths to choose and it's it's quite crazy. It's a labyrinth. Anyway, Buckle up, friends. Brother Projecto. Thanks for listening. There's just so many juicy details. So, with the um, Christor Inc., um, so these, the people who are in charge of this now, I noticed that they have Twitter accounts and um, the DJ, oh gosh, what's his name? DJ. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, D- D- Scaramanga. Yeah, he. So he makes music apparently. Uh huh. Yep. That is great. That is great. I haven't found um, where that's available yet. I'm I'm still looking around to see where I can hear that stuff. But I think this is so cool that these various uh, folks. There are three different skies: Sky H, Sky V, and Sky B. And then there's DJ Scaramanga. Are they so? Are they they implying that these are the four people involved with uh, Christor Inc. Or are these uh, just four basically characters that are the um, that maybe the members of Christor Inc. are are investigating? Or do you know how they fit into the into the story? Uh, I kind of only ostensibly. I know that. Uh, you know, there are a few different skies, and one of the skies, and, and all three of those skies are based on one real-life person, uh, actually a kid, um, and then the DJ is also a real person as well. Um, I don't know entirely how they all kind of fit into the story. I wish I was able to kind of follow it uh, as closely as I could, but um, yeah, I, I don't really know. How cool, man! That must be such an honor to know that you, you, um, you started this thing, and just to know that it's it spawned the imaginations of, of these folks, and just to see how they uh, alter their perspectives of of the world that you've yeah. created. Absolutely. Now, do you uh, do? You, I know, I know, you direct, you produce, uh, you write. Are you also a musician? I'm not a musician. That's the funny thing is I actually come from a very, um, very musical family. Uh, you know, my mom's a, a music teacher. My sister's a professional cellist. Um, but for whatever reason, just the gene passed me by. <laughs> I didn't really get hit with it. Not to say I don't have appreciation, but um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of weird. I, I actually don't even really listen to music. Um, I, I realized the the ability for music to change people's emotional states, um, and I think I'm uh, aware of how to pick and choose music for that. But um, yeah, I never really, I never really listen to music, <laughs> which is a weird thing to say, I guess. It's superhero, and you're listening to Inspirado Projecto. 
Listen, I don't have much time, but do you feel like you're going out of your gourd? Are you, do you have the cabin fever? Have you run out of Netflix to watch? If, has the thought occurred, hey, you know what? I can make funny stuff. I've been watching TikTok. I've been watching all the social networks and seeing what kind of creativity is coming out. I could create that. Hey, you know what? I wish they made a podcast about this. Well, you know what? You can make your own podcast. Go to anchor.fm. Go to it, please, right now. Make your own podcast. It's the lazy person's way to make stuff. You can make little segments. Uh, you can put music on there, found sounds, babies laughing, neighbors throwing frisbees, uh, uh, your friends playing guitar. Ah, it's so good. Anchor.fm. Please get this and find me, Inspirato Projecto. Let's be friends. Okay? Anchor.fm. That's interesting. You know, a lot of a lot of screenwriters they've they've they'll find themselves listening to a particular soundtrack or certain songs, and those might give birth to certain ideas and certain imaginations to write scenes around. That that type of stuff doesn't happen for you. Not really. I know. I think it's true with a lot of a lot of writers. I know, like Tarantino, will talk about like some putting soundtracks together before he's really set to to the page. Um, but no, it doesn't really happen for me. I think part of that is just, um, I guess, um, because, and, well, well, I'll do sometimes when I'm shooting an issue that doesn't require, like, um, you know, dialogue, is I will set up music, um, which, you know, a lot of, a lot of filmmakers will do the same thing, where I'll just play some, like, ambient, weird, dramatic, to get people in the right mindset, but, um, but, I don't necessarily like pick out the music that I I want before necessarily, only because uh, I'd be really disappointed if later on I wasn't able to use that music. You know, if I wasn't able to get the rights or, or license it. And so uh, before, I mean, I do consider myself a writer, but maybe more than anything, I'm like an editor. And you know. If I if I have music that I know I can use, then I'll edit to that and I'll I'll make that work. But if there's you know a pop song by Michael Jackson or whoever, whoever uh, I'm not necessarily be able to afford that. So yeah, I don't I kind of go blank, I guess. Um, not that I do have a really great composer named Justin Robbins, who's uh, the jam and super talented, and so you know I kind of just. Uh, now with this with the with the movie and I remember back when we, we I had interviewed you you were telling me about the Esquire and you're wondering how you could f- figure out clever ways to get it out there into the world and, and uh, you know maybe some worries about how it might clash with dispatches from elsewhere or what their plans were um, with that and and um, uh, so now, now that you've viewed it uh, or you've, you've you've changed the name to Grandview Boulevard where is it? Is it available to the to anyone to be able to see? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, what we did is we just made it free. Um, the community basically was a gift to the fan community. Um, so it's kind of like a uh, you know official or unofficial. Uh, I guess you'd say like an official fan film made by the people who made the the not dispatches, but the institute. Mm-hmm. And it really is just a fan film, but it's something that we gave to the community. Uh, so it's free, it's completely free to, to watch and view. There's donations set up, and the donations are going uh, in part 
to just a bunch of charities uh, that were set up and, and selected by the members for the Barrel East Bridge Society. Um, and then there's a little bit of, if there is a little bit of money left over, it's um, going, uh, not to me, but to like REA, Michael Bender, who was the actor who played the Esquire, uh, who's, uh, could, could use it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's available on the Crystal website. I believe it is, gosh, where is it? It's at um, crystalinc.com slash grand dash view dash full of, um, and it can be used there for free. Grand uh, dash view dash blvd? Yep. Wow, that's cool. That's so cool that you did that. Um, yeah. Because then yeah, that, uh, that just adds a whole nother extra, you know, that just adds a whole nother extra thing to this, to this whole world that's being built. Yeah, it's just sort of, it's just sort of like a little gift, a gift in a family development. Uh, you know, we're, we're donating, you know, to a lot of great causes. Um, Suicide Prevention Hotline, um, you know, Black Voters Matter Funds, uh, Trevor Project. So, yeah, a bunch of really great causes um, we're, we're trying to, uh, to get to. Who are some of your favorite influences growing up? Who are some of your favorite uh, directors, writers, um, painters? I mean, I think as it relates to this kind of stuff, it's kind of all over the place. Thing. I, I really do like, uh, you know, more blockbustery kind of stuff from time to time, but I think one of the biggest like influences influences for me was probably like Orson Welles. Not so much because of like Citizen Kane or anything, but because of one thing he did when he was very young and one thing he did when he was very old. The young is the 1938 uh, broadcast of the Fourth World, mm-hmm. uh, and then when he was much older, he created a film called That for Fake. Which yes, is, I don't know if you call it a documentary. Uh, I think he called it a film essay or something like that. Um, but really, really great film. I, I don't want to ruin it necessarily for people, but um, just an exploration of people who are, you know, kind of frauds or con artists or, um, you know, those who deceive for the purpose of creating art. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So it's like little exposés, one is on, an exposé on um, the, one of the greatest art forgers of all time. Uh, I forget his name, he's able to recreate uh, with such accuracy uh, Picasso paintings, um, so much so that, you know, art historians and art masters could not tell the difference between what he was doing and what uh, Picasso had done. The other was the, uh, the author who wrote the, uh, the quote official biography of Howard Hughes, um, which then kind of turned out it was he just made the whole thing up. <laughs> um, and uh, and then there's, there's a few others, but uh, yeah, I, I just absolutely love it. And so you know, kind of a mix of that, and then obviously a mix of, of love for Banksy, not just for you know the gorilla illegal stuff he does out on the streets. But, you know, connected to the gift shop, which also, you know, kind of taught me that, like, you can play with this medium. Like, you don't, there are no rules. 
like you don't as long as you're allowing the audience to know that you're being subjective or you're kind of like playing with them a little bit then just go for it and I just like rule breakers and people who you know don't ask for permission <laughs> Absolutely, and the commitment to the the project without irony. I, I always appreciate it when I see no irony, when um, when I see no self awareness, where they're kind of looking at the at the camera and winking and going, "Yeah, I, you know, look at this stupid thing I'm doing." But when they're actually fully into it, like Andy Kaufman is just so fully committed to what he's doing that uh, that's why it was so effective, because people didn't know whether he was joking or not, and he never let in on the, the idea that he may be joking or not. And with these projects that you've mentioned, F for Fake, it's so great because it's so committed to telling this story, and you, you don't realize that you're watching a magic trick um, until until it's over. You know, you're like, wow, this is an interesting magic trick we're watching here, F for Fake. And yeah, all that great stuff that happened with War of the Worlds, and um, it's 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 fascinating. No doubt, Andy Kaufman. I remember just being little and monstering the episode of Taxi and thinking like, oh, Lock is funny. Uh, he's the funny one. But uh, but it wasn't until I got like a little bit older and funny enough, like obsessed with Jim Carrey, that I really, after seeing Man on the Moon, just dug into like the actual Andy Kaufman and just like poured through as much as I could of his old stuff, uh, you know, uh, outside of Taxi, which I had already already been familiar with, and then realized he was like an absolute, you know, genius. That um, again, I just have to give like I think agents like George Shapiro, who's you know used to be a very famous like agent or manager mm -hmm. at the time, it's like guys like that that hold the power, or people like that who hold the power who really. Uh, take risks on people like Andy Kaufman. I mean, you could another, you know, if things had gone any different direction, uh, Andy Kaufman could have been like, you know, performing at, uh, <laughs> like Coney Island until, until he passed away. But, you know, you gotta always be really grateful to the, the people in power who take risks. Oh yeah, because you know that they that they have the choice of not being able uh, of not they have the choice of not doing that. They usually rely on, you know, a lot of times these these folks they'll uh, fall on the side of, well, is it a safe bet? Is there a good you know if I'm going to gamble, I want to make sure that this is a very safe bet. And and you know and a lot of times what happen what goes along with that is looking at what the other trends are or what everybody else is doing, and they go, okay, well let's kind of reconfigure it and kind of hijack that spirit and put it into our own thing. But it's the it's the folks who are the true pioneers, the people who are out there on the fringes, the visionaries who um, are, are following the sound. And you're like, okay, this person is only, uh, you know, in addition to not following any rules or protocols, um, they they are just <laughs> they they are doing something that's so undefinable because they themselves are not willing to be. Uh, uh, stuck within a certain definition. They're they're following their heart, and that could be any number of things, and you know, and then that leads to wrestling women, or that leads to a, a an unspoken of slap on on the uh, David Letterman show, or you know, <laughs> things like that where you're going, yeah. what the heck? what is going? I can't figure this dude out. This is crazy. Yeah, and I mean. I I remember back when the Institute, Jeff, Jeff Hall and I, we 
we borrowed a lot from, from some of the antics of, of Andy Kaufman where we did a screening one time and just during the Q&A we thought it would be funny uh, and I think we convincingly pulled it off where we just like went on stage looking really pissed off at each other and like not wanting to talk and being kind of forced to be on stage and the Q&A started and um, you know we're both being very like uh, off-putting and acerbic towards the uh, moderator who we didn't necessarily tell we were going to do this too and within three minutes um, we're you know screaming at each other and we're literally wrestling on the floor uh, and a bunch of people funny enough were like hey like are you okay after that you know which is kind of funny because they bought it but also we're like you know kind of nonchalant about two grown men fighting on stage during a film yeah um, <laughs> so yeah we, we did a fair amount of I love it. I love it. That's you know. That's uh, there's there's a lot of. I just I, I uh, I admire that kind of that kind of tenacity and commitment to a character. Uh, it's just it just makes me so happy inside. Like when people with the uh, people like Gene Shepard. Are you aware of? Are you a fan of Gene Shepard by any chance? Um, uh, I. I'm- I might be, but fill me in. Uh, the name sounds super familiar. Well, Gene, Gene Shepard, back in the day, he was a radio host. In fact, um, um, the movie Christmas Story, uh, all the narration in there is Gene Shepard, and it's based on his childhood stories that he would tell when he was on the radio. And so that's how that movie came about. He wrote a couple of books and stuff. Well, back during the day, he called, he called um, his listeners the night people because he had, like, you know, his shift went from like, let's say 11 at night to like five in the morning or something. So he had the night people and then there were the day people. And he goes, okay, everybody, let's play a trick on the day people. Let's, he goes, I'm, I'm tired of seeing these New York Times bestseller lists. And you know, how do these books even get up there? How, how do the people who are putting it on the bestseller list, how do they even know that these are even good books? Have they even read them? He goes, okay, so this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna play a little trick just to show how bogus the New York Times bestseller list is. He goes, we are going to invent a book. We're going to invent the title. We're going to invent the the insides. We're going to invent the author. And when we get this all down, and we get we we all got our stories straight. We're going to play a little trick on the day people, and we're going to go into the bookstores and we're going to request this book. And you know that first time they're probably going to be like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, you know, we don't know what that book is. But then the second time you go in there, they might decide to start looking in their computers because then they they go, "Wait, some other people have been here asking about it." And then before you know it, the the, the third time you go in there, they'll be ordering the book for sure. And so what happened was. They played this big joke, and they named the they named the book "I Libertine," and "I Libertine" um, by I think they made the characters uh, the the author's name Ewing something Ewing. Um, they they made up the whole thing, and sure enough, through their prankster prank through their pranks. Uh, they ended up getting it into the New York Times bestseller list because everybody was talking about it. Everybody was wondering about it. There were women who were going to their their um, uh, uh, you know having these these uh, I don't know particular meetings about you know crocheting or whatever. And uh, like there was a guy who said, "Oh my gosh, my mom my mom and her her crochet buddies started talking about I Libertine, and they were trying to out." 
they were trying to outcool each other, going, oh, I've read that book too. Oh yeah, I read that book. Yeah, I just got it. Oh, it's a very good book. So all these people were bragging about this this new book that was out there in the market and all claiming that they had read it and you know, saying that they knew what it was about, but nobody, nobody had read that book because it never existed. And then it was funny because um, one day, you know, a few months had passed by and this, this newspaper reporter called up Gene Shepard and he goes, hey man, I, I've, I've, I was there when the seed was planted. You know, I was listening to your show when it happened, and, and I kept tight-lipped about this. He, he said, Gene, what, what are your thoughts? Do you want to come clean about this? Do you want to, we could do an article about this. And he's like, and Gene Shepard's like, ah, okay, all right. So, all of a sudden, everybody who had been out there bragging about this, this bestseller, they all felt, you know, like, Hey, I've been hoodwinked, you know, and then they all started blaming Gene Shepard for pulling this joke on him. And he goes, look, I didn't pull the joke. You guys pulled it on yourselves. You you guys are the ones who were boasting about reading the book. And, you know, I just said, hey, wouldn't that be funny if we we tried this little prank? But, you know, the listeners were the ones who kept it going and you, the public, also kept it going. So it's not me. <laughs> it's in your hands now. And uh, so it was just such an interesting thing how it's kind of like that whole mentality of like, you know, you catch the person with their hand in the cookie jar and now they're going to find a way of making you be you know be blamed for for what they were caught for you know and and now you're in right. trouble because you caught them with their hand in the cookie jar but really they're the ones who did it so it was such it was such an interesting such an interesting uh, trick on the populace and uh, and then they ended up and then he ended up uh uh gene shepherd ended up um, collaborating with, uh, I think his name was Sturgeon. He was a sci-fi writer back in the day, and they actually ended up writing the real, the real book, which actually did. The real book then went up into the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> so it was funny. First, it was in the, in this bestseller list because it was a fake book, and then it ended up becoming a real book, and it still was in the bestseller list. Oh God, it was just amazing. <laughs> It's, uh, I'm going to read up all about Gene, but it, it also reminds me of um, something a friend of mine, uh, a documentary a friend of mine made a few years ago, uh, produced by Brian Carmel, who's my friend, but uh, the director was Vikram Gandhi, and it was a film called Kumare. And, I love that uh, movie! Oh my god, that movie's brilliant! Your buddy made that movie? Yeah, yeah, Brian. Oh my uh, God. Vikram was the, the subject and the, the director, but Brian was the producer. Oh, and, dude. Yeah, I mean, there's a similar thing where, you know, Vikram, oh, in, in a sense, but has no knowledge of, like, you know, yoga or, uh, you know, kind of any kind of guru Eastern knowledge, and uh, basically set out to create kind of a Swami cult, and, uh, by just making things up, basically, and got a whole bunch of people in Arizona to believe it, and as it kind of went on, started feeling really guilty about what he was doing, uh, so much so that finally at the end, when he, he had to come clean, he, he had to do it in such a way that was like, uh, he had to shift the fake religion into being like, the power is within you, like, you don't need me, uh, but even when he came clean, it, it still pissed off a whole lot of people. You know, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting movie because his, his whole, his whole, through his investigations, he realized that a lot of these gurus were, you know, I'm the one, you know, me, the guru, I'm the one with the power and you guys don't know what you're talking about unless I'm in the room and, you know, I'm the one who holds all the all the keys to your enlightenments and it was interesting how, how this guy went out to say, no, I, you know, 
the powers within these people, the powers within you. And it was funny because you do see that process of how he's making up these uh, meditations and he's making up these exercises along the way and just rolling with it. And it's it's an it's an amazing documentary. I just love it. I love that. Yeah, that kind of commitment that he that he held. And um, so you know, if you ever want to talk with uh, Brian, I think we can touch. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. I'd love to. This is, man, this stuff just, it, it excites the hell out of me. These types of, types of subjects. I mean, um, just like Alan Abel. Are you are you a fan of Alan Abel? This is another name. Uh, Kurt, I'm ashamed. I, I'm well, not familiar. You're, I mean, these are your, you know, these are your people. These are the, these are, you know, these, these are people who uh, planted the seeds long ago uh, of this type of, um, uh, uh, rogue behavior, if you will, um, just playing with the media, playing with the media. And uh, Alan Abel, he actually, he actually is the one who inspired Andy Kaufman to fake his death because Alan Abel had actually faked his own death. Uh, once again, in New York Times obituary, he faked his death over the course of a weekend, and uh, and then he finally came out after the weekend, going, "No, oh, it was just a joke." But uh, he gave his step-by-step process to Andy Kaufman as to how he went about doing it. And uh, that's a whole side rabbit hole with Andy Kaufman. But Alan Abel, <laughs> Alan Abel, um, his mission was to show the fallacy in in the in the in the media, in the news, and that no one in the news can be trusted. Any story can be twisted. Anything, you know. This is long before the buzzword fake fake news came about. So he was the originator of fake news, and he was such a media hoaxer. Um, he would stage these fake protests. And, uh, like, for instance, one of the big protests was against women uh, breastfeeding publicly. And so he would, you know, get, get the scowl on his face and he'd say, well, that's obscene, that's obscene. And um, uh, he, he would have, it, it would just, it was such an interesting thing just to see how, how the, you know, the media would pick this up and how people would react to this. Another, another one that he did was um, uh, protesting for animals having to wear pants he thought it was you know obscene for he's like hey humans have to wear pants i think it's only fair that animals wear pants especially horses and so he's so there's the huge you know protest of, uh, about that and um and then he pretended it was fu funny you brought up howard hughes he pretended one time because howard hughes was was in hiding for the longest time and alan abel um pretended that he was Howard Hughes and he had a he had plastic surgery and so right there on the news it was so funny because he had his head wrapped up like a mummy but he had just space enough there for his cigar to stick out and uh, so he's on the news and they're like okay you know uh, Howard Hughes has has come out of hiding and uh, and he's gonna show us his new face um, after all this plastic surgery and so you just see them unrolling 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 and meanwhile Alan Abel is still talking under underneath this thing with his with his cigar you know and they're just having this polite conversation all of a sudden the bandages come off they go wait you're Alan Abel you're the media hoaxer he goes mm-hmm yep that's all right you know and he's just like smoking his cigar and he's just so mild-mannered and uh, they're like what wh why why'd you do this and he's like ah you know the public they need a little bit of imagination you know they need they need they need a good kick in the imagination i forget it was a lot of fun you know and, and it was just so funny man he did so many little things like this um i got a chance to interview him and he just told me all these amazing stories and uh way back then you know you really couldn't fact check things you didn't have the the immediacy of the internet so you, you didn't it was much easier to to forge important documents and 
uh, uh, get fake stamps for uh, notaries and, you know, all this stuff. And so he just used that to his advantage like crazy. It was just just, just amazing. If you get a chance, check out the documentary. Check out the documentary that his, his uh, daughter put together. Um, it's called Abel Raises Cain. Abel Raises Cain. Um, a A B E L Alan A L A N A B E L. That's how you spell his name, Alan Abel. He's long. He's 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 passed away. He passed away a couple of years ago, but this guy, oh, just 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 an amazing, brilliant guy. And he ended up becoming close friends with with Andy Kaufman, and uh, those guys were like peas in a pod. And um, just a oh, just a just a great media hoaxer. But yeah, the, to know that these people have have lived out there in the world. You know, and then, like you were saying, Orson Welles doing the the um, uh, War of the Worlds over the radio, and uh, just just brilliant, just amazing, and uh, I think that that kind of behavior really ignites the mischievous uh, prankster within me. So I think when I first saw the Institute and I came across the Institute, I was just like, I gotta know who these people are who are in charge of this. And then once. You know, with once Kapow rolled around, and then I, I was reading through the biographies of these people who submitted their projects, and I'm like, no way, what? This guy, Spencer McCall, had to do with the Institute? Are you kidding me? And so that's what just excited the hell out of me, the fact that I'm like, what the? This guy, of course, of course, look how the universe works. Of course the universe would magnetize the guy who was responsible for cutting together the Institute. Of course the the universe would magnetize him somehow to the, universe, to the, uh, to the, to the film festival that I co-organize, and... Oh, it's just, it's so cool just to, to now be able to uh, jangle around in your brain and, and see your process with this stuff. Yeah, absolutely, Kurt. Uh, and speaking of the, the festival, uh, what's the plan for for the festival going forward? So since, as, as you've seen, like, you know, the, the classic uh, thing with uh, uh, Christopher Nolan's, what is it, Tenement? Is that the name of it? Tenement? It just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. Um, since we don't really know what the heck is going on with with theater these days, and and there was some dicey stuff going on with Lemley's, they were they were thinking about selling it. They're thinking of you know they didn't know what to, what really to do. And this is before COVID hit. So now there's there's an even bigger question mark going on with that. So we are teaming up with uh, now. This isn't official yet, but I can say that this is you know this is actually the first public mention of this. There's a there's a company called Filmocracy. And uh, that we're teaming up with, and Filmocracy is a—they're—they're—they're um, they're sort of uh, defining themselves as a um, a distributor of sorts for for indie indie films. Um, but in addition to that, they're going to do sort of like what um, that we had been talking with these people before. Actually, San Diego Comic Con ended up doing their virtual. Uh, they're, they did a virtual San Diego Comic-Con. So we were talking with these guys, and they go, this is going to be a virtual situation um, where... And th this is... We were talking with them about doing both a public... When we were going to do... We were going to do a Kapow public uh, film festival and then also do a virtual film festival with these guys. Now it looks like we're just going to go fully virtual uh, with Filmocracy. And so people will, it's cool because filmmakers from all over the globe will be able to check out what's going on. Like they won't have to be here in person 
to, yeah. you know, fly all the way out from the Netherlands or whatever and go, oh my gosh, you know, I spent all this money for plane fare and, and put myself in a hotel and, you know, making sure that I'm there for the screening. Now, these guys can watch it from the comfort of their own home and they can be involved with what's going on. And I can do Q&As with filmmakers in, um, in what they call tables, these virtual tables uh, in seminars and stuff where uh, filmmakers will be able to go to a virtual table and kind of go into it, kind of like a Zoom uh, meeting of sorts, and and talk with, let's say, people about, uh, like, for instance, the, we got a guy, Matt Jones, who uh, last year he did a seminar about posters, the importance of, of posters for your for your movie, and the fonts that you're using, and what ca- what colors are catchy, and uh, just the placement of the of the fonts, and the placement of the of what's on the poster, and all that stuff. So we're probably going to have a a, a a seminar about that, uh, or a seminar um, with people who talk about the importance of insurance on uh, on a set. So pe- people are going to talk right. about that. Uh, all the, all these different things. So. We're still trying to work out the, the, the kinks right now with how that's going to work out. Uh, for instance, are we going to have set times where where it's, it's still exciting where we go, okay, 3 p.m., this movie is going to be shown in this block. Um, uh, it's, it's a vastly different thing now because it's crazy because uh, in person at Lemley, uh, there was a certain time of each day that they would open up the theater, and then there was a certain time each day that they would have to close the theater, where we would have our last showing. Um, then we'd have to figure a, a half an hour in between each block of films, where um, w- where we factor in the Q and A's with the with the filmmakers, and then in addition to that, fifteen minutes of the employees going in there and making sure that they clean the theaters in between each. Um, in between right. each block. So now, now that we don't have that, it's going to be a vastly different thing. Are we going to start each block right away? Are we still going to leave a half an hour where we talk with the filmmakers? Um, how long is each block going to be? Is it going to be an hour? Is it going to be two hours? It's just so many little tiny intricate things. Are we going to have the premieres where it, it's still a fun thing where everybody can show up at 3 p.m. and check out the movie? Um uh, but then again, now we run into people who are, let's say, someone who's submitting from South Africa. Um, is that going to work strange for their time zone? If so, well, maybe we, maybe we have the the official, you know, premiere at this particular time. But then, throughout the rest of the day, we loop the films, you know, and then maybe those films are available for anybody to go in there and check those out at any time. Um, maybe just for the duration of the film festival. Uh, you know, and then that would just be on the private thing within Filmocracy. So it's not like anybody could go in there. You'd still have to get a ticket to be within this thing. It still would be protected in the sense where you couldn't pirate the films. So so there's all these little little things that we're, we're trying to figure out here. And what's so cool, what really, really excited me uh, about this was one of the guys who's uh, in charge of Filmocracy who puts it together, his dad... Uh, was in Dead Poet Society, one of my favorite films of all time. And his dad is the guy, um, oh gosh, I think, he, I can't remember if he, what his name, what he goes by in his name, but he's the guy who paints the little, uh, like, native uh, insignias on his cheeks. He's like, damn it, my name's Nuwanda. And he's the guy who stands up in the oh. church. Do you, you know who I'm talking yeah. about? And, um, that was, was that the actor who also was recently in, like, Silicon Valley? Uh, Oh jeez! Uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I feel like uh, 
Yeah, I am too. I, I actually, Let's see. Well, but he's the guy who stands up in the middle of the church and he has the f the phone is ringing and he's like, "Sir, God is calling. It's for you." <laughs> right. And so it was right. just cool to know that his dad, like that's that's his son right there. And I'm like, oh my god, how cool would that be to get that guy in there for a Q and A? You know, about his film career, about what he's working on now. Uh, um, let's see. good oh yeah very exclusive very exclusive yeah twenty five thousand dollars for a ticket <laughs> I love it. that's good that's... oh yeah free popcorn absolutely i just found i just found this guy i think his name is josh charles is that the name that you said earlier josh charles yeah 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 yeah, yeah i think that's the guy um and, you know the thing is with with we were talking about this where like if we, i i some of the guys really wanted to still try to f shoehorn in a, a, a live, you know, theater experience and 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 try to make that work. And and I thought, oh man, like I I, I just don't know if I, it's it, it would be a brand new. So it'd be like a brand new type of thing because then we'd have to deal with masks. We'd have to deal with a whole slew of things now that 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 we, you know, we'd have probably a, a, a very small audience because we couldn't we couldn't put people, you know, we wouldn't be able to sell out an auditorium, and then that, of course, would change the amount of money that the, the theater would have to charge us for that week, and, I mean, it's like, right. it's such an unknown, kind of up-in-the-air type of thing, uh, that, I mean, I think your your plan of t uh, the $25,000 ticket just might work, especially if we can only put, <laughs> especially, especially if we only put, can put maybe 20 people in the theater, um, that that would be uh, that would be fantastic. Um, maybe they go home with a you know some gold plated uh, something or other, um, or a facsimile thereof. Or yeah, or what you do, Kurt, is um, you it doesn't even have to be a theater, but you set up uh, a room that has you know like let's say your festival has you know fifty films, you set up a room that has fifty monitors on it, and they're just constantly playing a loop, uh, and like that loop goes you know at least for the short film block goes for like 10 minutes so somebody can go in and watch all of the short films in 10 minutes and then you can have the next person go in oh that is <laughs> watch them all in 10 minutes yeah they're all just playing ubiquitously on all these monitors <laughs> oh that's good yeah that's right. It's a true uh, choose-your-own-adventure film festival. It's like, okay, which screen are you going to be watching? Which one are you going to, you know, spend your precious time watching right now? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah, maybe the award could be like a COVID mask or something. We just dip it dip it in a, um, in a, in a copper solution or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious to see, like, where... 
let's just say that um, you know the, the bubonic plague only lasted about 300 years. So oh yeah. Let's assume that uh, COVID is going to do the same. And I'm, I'm just really curious where the technology is going to go in terms of uh, you know face coverings or full body coverings as uh, as we go into the next uh, two centuries of COVID. Oh my gosh! Wow, man! Wow! I I'm just already thinking we're pr- we might see more you know scuba gear type apparatuses out there. Um, maybe more gas masks. Uh, I mean, gosh. Well, I kind of think in some ways it would be a great equalizer. You know, if everybody's looking like, you know, Star Wars helmets. You know, you don't know if Boba Fett is, you know, female or male or, or non-binary. You don't know Boba Fett's race. I mean, I guess you do if you watch the prequels. But, you know, it, it could be this great equalizer of everybody, um, you know, uh, <laughs> like... You know, identity politics becomes a thing of the past because nobody can actually see any other human being. Ooh, uh, ooh, that's good. That's good. And then it's truly based on a personality. It's truly based on a vibe that's happening there. And uh, wow, and that's good because then no one would be able to say that anyone w- was, you know. Uh, uh, let's say they they wouldn't be able to use their identity card as as a as an excuse to say like well you don't like me because of this right it, it would just be like you're it's no it's strictly on your personality it's strictly on the vibe you're putting out there boy you know it's interesting how because my fa- my favorite um, uh, holiday is Halloween and I just felt like once this pandemic came about. I was like, holy cow, now almost, you know, like, every day is Halloween now. Everyone's got a mask on. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, although you could say that Halloween it can be a bit ageist uh, at times. Because, mm. you know, you know, at, at 34 years old, uh, the last few years when I've tried to go out trick-or-treating, I just uh, suffer some pretty bad ageism. And, 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 uh, <laughs> pretty bad ageism. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. so interesting i um right before let's see i think it was i think it was right when right when we were just hearing the news of covid coming around um i had i i was going through my my fire stick uh through cody and i came across uh, the Last Man on Earth, and I'd never seen that TV show before, and I thought it was so crazy that it starts right out. It goes um, one year after the virus, and then it says uh, 2020, 
And I thought, wait, what? And the whole show, I didn't realize it was because of a virus that had wiped out the populace. And, and it was so strange because when I, I did my research and it turned out that that first episode aired in um, March, uh, what, 2015 or something, in March. And here I was watching it in March. And, and then it says, you know, in the first screen, it says one year after the virus. And then it says 2020. And I'm going, what the heck? I've somehow entered like a strange fractal. What is going on here? And as you continue watching this movie or this TV show, you see how people, you know, through through the progression, they show flashbacks of, of the beginning stages of the virus. And you see these people wearing masks out there in the streets and to the grocery stores and people wrapping themselves up in plastic and, and putting little COVID masks on their dogs and all this, or putting the virus masks on their dogs. And I'm thinking, whoa, man, wow, man, this is... Like, it's been said that we've, we, we manifest our realities and... Um, in cases like that, it makes me kind of really curious about being very careful about the about the imaginations that that I allow to uh, escape my lips out there into the populace. Because <laughs> uh, you know, you, you just wonder, like, especially with all this talk about like zombie apocalypses, zombie, zombie, zombie. Uh, who's to say that somehow that is not being, you know, actually being spoken into existence in some strange way? Um, in some laboratories out there or something. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts about uh, um, uh, manifesting reality and and being sort of the the author of of your reality experience? Hmm. Um. Yeah. It's sort of like the idea of, of that secret. Um. I. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. I I have been like almost divinely lucky in my life with certain things um, with certain opportunities which we were talking about earlier um, where things really do fall in my lap um, and it's just kind of a lot of times just luck but it seems to happen so often that it at times makes me I don't know there's no guardian angels or anything like that but uh, you know it's enough to make me I'm definitely a pretty agnostic person just very open to the idea of not necessarily like the idea of magic but just uh, the idea of a lot of things we don't fully understand yet that you know science hasn't qualified or quantified yet um and so i mean i i definitely believe in self-fulfilling prophecies where when you worry about something you end up or when you are yeah i'll just say worry you end up kind of like willing it into existence, but when you're also very excited about something, and I'm just speaking for myself, but when you're very excited about something and optimistic and looking forward to it, and you believe good things will happen, you also kind of will those into existence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's that every day, like on the internet with like, you know, the Trident effect, where it's like, if you're upset about something, you're probably only going to make that thing worse or exacerbated or bigger. Um, whether you're worried or upset, you will self-prophesize that into existence or a greater level of existence. And I think that's been true for me in life, both for good or for bad. But usually when I'm positive and I believe something's going to happen and I work really hard for it, 
keep good attitude, it ends up kind of happening. Like, it just happens. Like, I, I never really had any doubts that, well, I mean, I did, but I kind of just put it out of my mind. So I kind of just was neutral about my dispatches. You know, when it happened, initially I was just so excited. Oh, gosh, here it is. Here's the big, the big break. And, you know, one year turns into five. And all the while, I, I didn't worry about it, but I, I just kind of kept it out of my mind. I feel like had I worried about it, maybe I would have done things where it's like I'm emailing, emailing certain people too often, being like, what's the status? What, how's, it, how's it going? And in turn, all that would do is just like make people turned off by the project and stop pursuing it. Whereas, um, you know, I was just kind of chill about it. If it ha- happens, great. Uh, and then it kind of happened. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I've just been lucky and I've talked to a lot of people being like this doesn't happen like um, some of my like lawyers early on who helped with the contract and stuff it was like I can't believe that you know AMC picked this up like this is so rare especially for your movie <laughs> to, to have this happen like things get optioned every day if you write a, if you write an article in the, the LA Times or, or anything you write a popular blog story or you have a big TikTok account, you get options right away. But those things usually never like get picked up. You know, it's like one out of every thousand things that gets options actually gets made. And I didn't really know that and I think it was really a benefit for me not knowing that because had I known that I would have pushed harder and worked harder to be like, I don't want to be in that little percentile, I want this to be made, and again, I probably would have, like, turned people off of the project, so that's also just a way of saying, like, when I stepped back and, and you know, surrendered myself to, like, this is beyond my control, um, you know, the whole, like, um, give me the power to change the things I can and the, the wisdom to, whatever it is, the wisdom to, to know the things that I can't, um, uh, I think that's like a, a, a rehab quote or something like that. But um, yeah, I think it's just really true. It's like you just kind of release yourself to the heavens sometimes and you don't fight it. Um, things will just work out for you. That said, for every like one thing that works out for me, I'm under things don't. So that's why I'm like working on like 8,000 different projects at the same time. And I kind of wonder sometimes what, if, what would happen if I devoted all my attention to one thing instead of like little attention to like a bunch of different things um but i just feel life is short and most things don't work out so if i spend too long working on one thing and it doesn't work out at least i've got other things to fall back on well it's interesting um a couple things you said there first of all had you known what these lawyers told you, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of folks they they rule their lives based on statistics or the odds or probabilities or what some experts or some authors out there have written about or or speak loudly about, and so a lot of folks are going, well, chances are this won't happen, or chances, are, and for some weird reason, there's an overabundance of that type of mindset of. Um, you know, odds are this probably won't happen. And but it's it's funny because we're dealing with a universe here that is the very thing that is enable us enabling us to talk right here. All the frequencies and vibrations and all the quarks blipping in and out of existence. It's like 
there's no way that any sort of limited-minded human being, no matter how powerful the telescope or microscope, can ever wrap their brain around what is, you know, what is the very, you know, wrap their brain around the very thing that is enabling them to ask those questions and to think about those things. So it's funny because just as a possibility of something not happening exists, there's also that great possibility that something does, ex you know, that something uh, will happen. I mean, l let's look just at like the the uh, the Cubs winning the World Series. How many years did we hear that that would never, ever, ever happen? And yet that happens, that breaks on through the other side. And I thought that when I saw that happen, I thought, man, this this will have such a wonderful psychological effect on so many people out there who... Uh, you know, are taught to not follow their dreams or that, you know, uh, like, for instance, we always hear, well, you know, everything's oversaturated with writers or oversaturated with actors or oversaturated with musicians. Oh, there's no way you'll be able to get in there. Oh, there's just too much of it. Well, okay, why is this person saying this? What's their motivation? You know, are they telling us this out of their own limited belief systems? Um, and why do they not think that there's enough room for every kind of perspective that's that's out there i mean it's 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 really interesting when you um when you see the kinds of musicians and the kinds of actors and the writers and stuff that make their way through there and some people shake their heads going how the heck did that happen well i don't know but it happened it's because that person followed their calling and they they went all in on it they decided to just keep following that and no one could have ever guessed that something like the Institute could exist or uh, in Bright Axiom could exist and yet here this specific particular kind of thing exists. Had you listened to naysayers or or the statistics or the odds out there going, oh, well, what are the chances of this possibly happening? It, it, you, you might find yourself going, oh yeah, you're right, you know, these people seem to know what they're talking about now, yeah, now, who, who would want to ever see a, a movie about this or about that? Um, but there's that sort of interesting it's almost kind of like that ignorance is bliss type of thing. You know, you follow the bliss, um, ignorant of the naysaying, <laughs> and you end up creating something extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, but the funny thing about, like, you know, saying the Cubs, I know you're a Chicago guy, like, and you're saying the Cubs are never going to win. That also takes a bit of, like, magical thinking, where it's like, uh, it's like, that, that almost takes some kind of belief in, I, I know the Red Sox is the curse, but I don't know what the Cubs situation was, you know better than me, but like, the idea that like, you know, believe that the Cubs are never going to win the World Series, you have to like, believe there is some kind of magic in the world uh, that is preventing that from happening. Right, right, right. So, yeah. What a great way of putting it. Wow. Wow. What a great way of putting it. There's just as much magic in disbelieving in the possibility of something existing as there is in believing in the possibility of something existing. Holy cow. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly it. It's, yeah, I think that, you know, that's the thing that's it is that for everybody who tells you, like, there's no way that's going to work, that requires some level of magic. To believe that, wow. you know, like dark magic, maybe. But uh, you know, an example just with the institute when I was telling some friends I was going to start doing it, like, what are you shooting on? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I have access to this little like DSLR, you know, like this five hundred dollar DSLR that I can borrow. And go, like, you can't make a feature film on a DSLR. Uh, I mean, at least 
that was the idea back in right. 2012. Right. You know, and it's like, well, I don't have another choice. Right. So, it's incredible. So many times we hear about that, where they're like, oh, well, that's outdated. That's not industry standard. That's another buzzword I keep hearing. Oh, that's not industry standard. Industry standard is this. Okay, who is this industry person, and can I talk to them about where they're getting these ideas from? Because uh, <laughs> because when you do the best you can with what you got, you end up seeing some really extraordinary things come about when all you got is a $500 DSLR. It, it, what's Okay, what's the better, more rewarding choice? Shooting with... Well, uh, the 500 DSLR that you got, or not shooting something because you need to have this—you know—I don't know—red camera that's five thousand dollars, and and you better go to work, and you got to start saving up money in order to do that thing, and you know that you might save up enough money in a year, and then you can shoot that thing. Well, what's better, waiting around? or being proactive with something, doing the best you can with what you got. And it's like when you strike when that inspiration is hot, holy moly, it's like, I just feel that it's, it's, I've grown, I've grown. And, and like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go, yeah go on. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 you were saying something. Oh, I, I, well, I was just gonna say that like, uh, and in recent years, I actually have been able to direct and work on, on shoots where we are shooting on an Aria Alexa or a Red. And it's been great. The, the footage looks great, but the amount of like setup time and yes. technical limitations definitely have put a damper on the creative spark of just like, let's go do this really quick. So when I do shoot on those things, I, I really love steady cam. So you just like set it up. We can change really quick. We can move really fast, but you can't always shoot on steady cam. And and I just feel like a lot of times, just being able to you know point something at you know just agility breeds uh, some level of creativity. Oh, oh my um, God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you don't have access to those things and you don't have a budget, the creativity really thrives. The, the creativity really thrives then because then you're going, okay, well, in a perfect world, I'd have this particular set set up and all this production design and all these little nuggets going on there, but all I got is a beach. So let's, what kind of cool stuff can we do with this beach? And what's what's available here? Can someone build something with the out of the sand? Uh, are there any crabs running around? Uh, uh, oh, gather those seashells. We're gonna spell a word with it. Um, you know, <laughs> and you start you start figuring out what you can do with with uh, that. What might others look like uh, a limitation? You're going well. This is what we got here. So there's boundless imagination. So how do we how do we bring that to light? Oh, well, I uh, want to ask you, have you heard of the Monroe Institute? Yes, I have heard of the Monroe Institute. Uh, and once I started learning about the Monroe Institute, they even have a whole thing about dolphins. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I wonder if any of those were, were any, were there any Monroe Institute isms that were uh, inspirational behind the Institute? I would say that probably, um, I think it would be more, that might be more of a question for Jeff Hall, um, mm -hmm. who I think you'd have a great conversation with and touch, uh, because the, the history of the Union Institute, that was really all, you know, brainchild of, of Jeff Hall, and, and I believe, you know, along with Ethelin and Hess and, and Dianetics and all of that, um, I, I do believe, and the forum, 
Youngstown, like I think, I think that in addition to the Monroe Institute, they were all kind of a, a mishmash of uh, of inspiring themes and, and moments in history. Wow, wow, so incredible! If you get a chance, I mean. I'd say do a deep dive into the Monroe Institute and see as much as you can about that because it's I've talked to people who have studied there and there is magic stuff there is magic in the world and um, the Monroe, Monroe Institute helps helps bring that about that's for sure they've found specific frequencies for specific um, for specific abilities and uh, it's it's really quite astonishing to see to see what's possible there. <laughs> it's really crazy. Um, uh, okay, let's see. Oh, gosh, what was the other thing I was going to ask you? So you're so you're working on a... I know you're saying you're working on a bunch of projects. I love doing it, too. I love just spinning the plates and, you know, giving equal attention. I feel like all these ideas are my, my little babies, and um, and it's up to me to, to give them life someday, whether it's a screenplay or a song or what have you. Um, do you feel that sort of allegiance with your ideas? Um, I mean, I, I don't feel limited by any one medium necessarily. I, I'm more a visual person, so I like seeing things, um, maybe even more so than hearing them. Uh, but I, I, I definitely don't have any allegiance to, like, genre or tone, but I think tone is something that is often very forgotten, um, like, when, when kind of learning about, like, how you make a a project, um, you know, what is the tone of it, um, and, and how do you make that happen, like, mystery is not necessarily a genre, you know, um, like, som- somberness is not a genre, um, you know, muted colors, if it's like an aesthetic, but just all of these things, finding the tone of any project I work on, like, sometimes it's a lot easier, like, genre does dictate tone, you know, like, I'm making a screwball comedy, and so camera's going to be kind of wacky and moving around, and it's going to be, like, lit well, and, you know, there is some of that, um, but I've always been really interested in, like, experimenting with, uh, creating new tone, um, and that's, it's a hard thing to do, <laughs> it's hard, yeah. Wow, man, that is such a good point. The tone—it's—I've been watching movies lately and just really paying attention to the soundtrack that's under there and realizing, wow, the sounds are there to serve the the emotion that's being expressed by the you know any number of things. But it, from what I've been noticing, it's like, oh, that's that's interesting how that that harp that they're using or whatever is like right in time with this person crying, and each time they sob, there's another bloop bloop bloop, you know, on the on the harp. Or um, yep. it's it's really interesting when when music can be used in that way of expressing those kinds of emotions um, within that tone. And when you when you when you express tone, do you try to find certain? Because so much of that is done by the, the music or I guess percussion in the sense of like uh, what the the bird uh, the Birdman movie with Michael Keaton. A lot of that was just percussion. Um, do you do you try to? I know you're saying you're not much of a music guy, but do you do you ever try to like go? Oh, okay. I like what this. I like the tone. I like the mood. I'm getting this kind of mood from this particular music, and maybe I could have my soundtrack guy, you know, kind of bring that kind of mood into it. Um. Well, that's interesting. Um. I. Yes, I mean, I think 
music and sound is kind of one component of tone, but you know, there's also like the visual stuff. Like all of it kind of contributes to tone, but tone is like this kind of invisible spirit or like the id of the film, mm. you know, or, or project like this subconscious, like either, you know, dark spirit underneath. It's something you can't necessarily say, but it's the alchemy of all of the different um, pieces of art coming together and, and not creating something that like, potentially moves your, your spirit. Uh, but I will say that I worked on one project once where what I really wanted to do was uh, basically <laughs> uh, have a composer write the music for the film, but then I wanted to basically um, have that music go through just the music itself. We were going to pipe it through a big pipe and on the other end of the pipe was going to be a vocoder, you know, the thing that changes, like, uh, you know, your mouth into, you know, a gas pump kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's that vocoder. But instead of the vocoder being applied to a, a keyboard with just, you know, some kind of synth tone, uh, recalibrating those tones to be sounds that were natural in the environment so that the music becomes the sound effects, but the sound effects like the wind and the creek, they're shifting in to a melody that was originally created. Um, and that's something I still really want to do and work on, but it was so ambitious and hard and it's going to take so long that uh, and expensive that we, we couldn't do it. But I'm going to return to that uh, one wow. day where all that there is is, so basically you, you film a scene that has a lot of like, sound design in it, in this case it's set in a forest, there's birds and there's uh, the creek and there's the wind and there's the leaves rustling and each one of those you can think of as the baseline you can think of as the melody you can think of as the rhythm the percussion uh, the raining so that helps kind of like create like this sort of symbol uh, concept and you you basically uh, you know put all the sound effects in then you write out the music and you apply each layer of the music to one of those sound effects and you adjust the, the pitch and, and timber and, and volume and everything of the sound effect as dictated by the melody and the music that you had written so that the music is the environment, if that makes sense. Wow. Oh, man, that's awesome. I'm looking into getting a... Uh, there are a few of these different devices where you can uh, hook them up to plants and you can hear the plants singing. They're, it's their consciousness that's flowing through the leaves. And that is just so fascinating to me. And uh, that stuff can then be put into a uh, MIDI, you know, into a synthesizer, and then you could change the sounds through that as well. That's kind of, yeah, that's, that's part of the idea, for sure. And, uh, Kurt, I'm so sorry. I gotta, uh, I gotta yeah. step away after, before my 2.30. Oh, dude. Um, it was great. Thanks again for, for, for another enlightening conversation, man. Um, and I look forward to collaborating with you again in the future. This is just so, so cool. This is just a wealth of information and insight. So thank you so much for sharing that with me and all the people that'll be, that'll be listening to this. Likewise. Thanks so much. All right. Take care, Spencer. All right. Bye. There you go. Spencer McCall, another astounding swath of information. You are listening to Inspirado Projecto.
Get ready.